Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 83rd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is John Henshin. John is the president of Henshin Associates, a recruiting firm that specializes in helping advisors find and match themselves to the right independent broker-dealer when making a switch to a new platform. What's unique about John, though, is his willingness to be transparent in how broker-dealer recruiting really works in a segment of the industry that historically has thrived by keeping much of its compensation hidden with back-end commissions and markups. In this episode, we talk in depth about the key factors to consider when evaluating a prospective independent broker-dealer, why the ownership structure and, and whether the BD is publicly owned or privately owned or whether the private owner is an individual or a bank or an insurance company or a private equity firm is so important, the ways that certain broker-dealers specialize in certain types of reps, how forgivable loans work when advisors are recruited to a new independent broker-dealer, and the ways that broker-dealers have created profit centers above and beyond the payout grid, which is crucial for advisors to know so they don't unwittingly switch to a broker-dealer that may drive higher pass-through costs to their clients. We also talk about how the independent broker-dealer recruiting model itself works, how recruiters are paid by broker-dealers to find new advisors to switch to them, what broker-dealers really spend upfront in order to attract advisors to make the switch, and how the dynamics differ when being recruited to a larger versus smaller independent broker-dealer. And be certain to listen to the end, where John talks about the trends in independent broker-dealers that advisors should know when considering where to build their businesses in the long run, how the growth of the RA channel and the fee-based businesses impacting the broker-dealer model, and how different broker-dealers are taking very different positions on whether or how to support hybrid RAs. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with John Henshin. Welcome, John Henshin, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm really excited about this podcast today because we are, I think, kind of kindred spirits of a certain philosophy that the industry could use a little more transparency. And you do this in a very particular way. I know you are a recruiter for independent broker-dealers, like not for anyone. You, you, you are an independent recruiter of or for independent broker-dealers and just help that whole process of how advisors have to figure out the matchmaking of here's my existing client based on my book of business and I want to switch broker-dealers and I'm not sure who to switch to based on what I do and who I serve and how I charge and what technology use and all that. Like It's a very messy process for a lot of advisors. But you have, like me, this kind of philosophy around the industry could stand to be a little more transparent. And unfortunately, there are few areas that are more opaque, I think, than the broker-dealer model and how broker-dealers actually make money and, and run their businesses. And so I'm looking forward today to a discussion of just hopefully giving more insight and perspective about how all this stuff really works, how it works behind the scenes. Like Not because we're out to do a this isn't meant to be a, like a gotcha thing against broker-dealers. They're businesses. They provide a service. They're fully entitled to make money at what they do. But I find there's there's not always a healthy balance when you don't understand how they're making money, which means you can't pick the right platform for you because you have no idea if you're picking a platform that 
gives you, you know, reasonably priced services for what the, what you're going to do for your clients or might really overcharge you for those services if you don't know how they charge in the first place and how they're making their money. And so it's kind of my my goal for the podcast today is just un- unearthing a little bit of that perspective around how broker dealers really work so you can pick the right one. Sure. So as a as a starting point, John, can you just tell us a little bit about Pension and Associates, your business, and and what you guys do. Yeah, yeah, we're focused on the independent broker dealer channel. We contract with currently at about eighty independent broker dealers that we contract with. We were as high as you know ninety two or so a few years ago, but there's fewer broker dealers than than there used to be, and so we've kind of pared that down now to to around eighty. But yeah, our focus is we are very, we're specialized where we help advisors who are at the crossroads where they realize, hey, this broker dealer isn't working out for me for whatever reason. We need to find a new home. But there's a lot of firms out there. How do we know what, what would be the best firm for our, our particular needs and, and likes? And so we go through a research process with them of you know, picking apart their business and finding, you know, having some open discussion topics. So it's our initial consultation call, which usually takes about a half hour to 45 minutes. And it's more of a fact gathering and getting to know them. So once we have the information gathered we need through that call, we go through a research process on our end with the objective of funneling down to two to four firms that best fit their profile and need because we, we realize reps like to have choices and they don't want to be pigeonholed. And, and so, yeah, we give them some choices of firms we think that are a best fit. And we talk about those firms and then the firms they're interested in pursuing. We have them have those firms send their marketing material to the advisor and, and follow up on their end. And we're there as a resource from that point forward for the advisor. They A lot of times they come to us with questions for perspective, you know, like the, the broker dealer is telling us this, is this normal in the industry or is, is that unique to them? So yeah, we're, we're oftentimes used as a objective sounding board because we're not married to anybody. You know, we're we contract with these firms. There's no cost to the rep for using our services and the broker dealers are more than happy to, to, to pay us a small stipend for referring quality reps that they know will be a fit for their particular model. And, you know, just like they pay money for advertising and, and online ads and, and things like that, you know, our, we're comped out of their marketing budget. So when they use our services, it has no effect on what they get offered by the broker dealer. Interesting. That's a, like a good note. It, it's, they don't draw the dollars from their, you know, the, the pool of money they're using to do rep payouts. They literally pull it from their, their marketing budgets, their marketing advertising budgets is, you know, Hey, we can, we can go sponsor a bunch of conferences or do a bunch of advertising or other things to reach prospective brokers that want to make a change. Or we can use some of those dollars and pay independent recruiters like pension associates to, to do that matchmaking process. Yeah. Sometimes advisors will think, well, you know, would I get more upfront money if I didn't use you and went direct? No, that's not the case. You'd be offered the same either way. As a matter of fact, broker dealers on forgivable note money nowadays, it's based on a matrix where they'll run their product mix, their profitability, and also they bring in things like compliance record. And so it's very cut and dry what they get offered and whether they use me or not, it would be the same scenario as they enter that information into a matrix and it spits out a number. Interesting. And out of curiosity, how do they set 
comp for independent recruiters like you then? Is it is it like, do they pay for introductions? Do they pay for reps that actually come over? Do they at least give you some kind of tiering? Like, hey, if, you know, if someone comes over with a half million production, that's a better payment to the recruiter than someone that only comes over with 150,000 of GDC. Like, what does the system look like for that? Yeah, we're, we're, we're comped off. We got a percentage, a small percentage of the GDC, a total 6%. You know, you deal like with the wirehouses and some some of the larger BDs. They just pay six percent up front on the trailing twelve, and but most of the firms will stagger it where you'll get like three percent of the trailing twelve up front, and another three percent at the end of their first year. Right, just just to make sure they stick around and don't bounce. Right, like you gotta gotta do a little bit of retention risk management on their end. Interesting, and like I'm just curious, is that is that standard across broker dealers or or is there a dynamic like when they're making because I know across BDs, you know, the ones that are recruiting more aggressively may have much higher forgivable notes and other things that they offer to reps to to push their recruiting cycle. Do they vary in what they pay recruiters as well? Are there firms that say like, hey, we're doing a big recruiting push, so we're doing eight percent offers for a while, or has the recruiter space just kind of standardized at a at a number that's common across the board? It it is six percent pretty much across the board. Occasionally, and I had a larger firm approach me recently saying, hey, we're, you know, any business you bring us till the end of the year, we're gonna pay you eight percent total. And I didn't ask for it. They offered it. Will it influence me? No. You know, I, I like a level playing field. I only match up by if it's a fit or not. And frankly, I prefer it to be the same because I don't even have to think about that as something that would skew my opinion. It's, it's, it's frankly kind of ironic to me that in, in for all the different ways that the brokerage industry has historically tried to impact incentives with compensation, like I'm, I'm kind of amazed that the recruiting business has managed to get to such a standardized uniform number that's consistent across the board. Like I, I view that as a huge positive that when – you know, independent recruiters get paid out of marketing and not out of the rep pay and get a standard number. Like you can really get a healthy, objective consultant marketplace that just plays matchmaker to reps finding the best fit for wherever it is they're going. And obviously the the BD may recruit the rep harder to say yes if they are, you know, really want to get the rep to switch over, but they're not distorting it at the at the recruiter level. Like that's I'm 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 very happy to hear that. <laughs> I yeah, yeah. Is it largely that's the case? It's it's rare I have anybody deviate from the total of six percent. They just vary how they split that up. As a matter of fact, most of the small and mid-sized BDs I deal with, my standard comp that I prefer, it's two percent up front and two for two years, two percent override. And that's pretty digestible for smaller firms that don't have as deep a pocket. Okay. And I'm sure we'll talk about this a little, but the the dynamics of recruiting are very challenging, very different for some small to mid-sized broker dealers because they they just don't have the upfront dollars to do the same kinds of payments as the as some of the bigger ones do. Just they literally don't have access to the capital to do the cash, and and it creates challenges for them and kind of a a less even playing field for recruiting across the the broker dealer marketplace. So so for the like eighty plus broker dealers you you work with. I mean, I, I know from the BD space, like 
I forget what the exact number is from FINRA. There's something like 3,600 broker-dealers, but from a practical perspective, something like 80 or 90% of all registered reps work at roughly the top 50 or top 75. So so I, I, I guess at, at the point of 80-something broker-dealers that, that you recruit for, you've got virtually everybody of any size is is in the mix there. I mean, are there ones that just say, Hey John, sorry, we don't work with independent recruiters. And, and so there's some of the top 50 that would bow out of this process with you, or is it just the list ends at about the top 80? Cause by the time you get below that, they just don't have much capital. They're not doing much recruiting. They, they just aren't really in that game. So it's kind of a moot point to go further down the line. There's quite a few broker dealers that fall in the category of they're just there's not much they bring to the table that interests me. I don't need to do the due diligence on you if I know you're never going to win a <laughs> win a situation with someone I'm working with. Yeah, I mean, it may where you know your payouts are below normal, your expenses are above normal, your advisory administrative fees are above normal, and there's really no bells and whistles going on here. So why would I be interested? So I get approached a lot where firms will contact me wanting to wanting me to recruit to them and I you know be well send me over your marketing material let me look through that to include you know this particular information like your ticket charges your payout grid your advisory administrative fees you know if you're working with alternative investments a list of what products you work with there so let me look over your material and I'll get back to you with questions and so I'll, I'll do the research and I'll look at, you know, I'll go on the SEC website and look at their financials and how much, you know, if they're if they're profitable or not, how much net capital do they have? And then I'll look on FINRA to see what's going on there. If there, there's problematic situations there. And for smaller BDs, I'll even scan and look at their their reps records and scan their reps on FINRA to see if they have a lot of reps with multiple marks on their record. So I, I go through my own due diligence and determination whether I'm interested. You know, this this last year I've cut some firms out, mostly concentrated in the East that are more stock jock focused, that have a lot of problematic reps. And so I'm kind of phasing those out. You know, there, there's far fewer of these stock churners today than there used to be. And thank God for that. Yeah. <laughs> so, I feel like that's part of the that's part of the industry. The stockbroker model has been kind of dying for 20 years now. Once the once the internet showed up, people could just buy them online. And, and we all shifted to mutual funds and manage money and all these other models. But I guess the flip side is it's amazing how long some broker dealers have managed to remain stock jocks and keep going for a model that's been declining for 20 odd years now that just, you know, old old businesses die hard, I guess. Well, FINRA hates that model. And so if you have that model, you're going to have FINRA camped out yeah. at your at your firm. I remember Newport Coast Securities out of Newport, California, and the president was sharing with me how FINRA had been auditing them for eight months. They were there for eight months. <laughs> just, which at a small to mid-sized broker dealer, I mean, that is just that's staff intensive. I mean, not not even not even just the the actual stress of having FINRA set up camp in your office, but just 
Well, they could. They had a hard time just recruiting. Yeah, because they were totally tied up. Yeah. Like you're going to do a due diligence visit. It's like this is Finra's office. They live here, but no, no, no. It's okay. Right. Well, the regional Finra office was just down the street for them, so they blamed it on that. So their answer to to feeling like they were getting picked on because they were just down the street. So they moved their home office to New York City, and so the president they got a new president. And and the, so president and the compliance head were based out in New York City. Otherwise, everything else was still over in Newport Beach. And so they thought, hey, this this will help us get lost in the forest of broker dealers in New York City. And yeah, they ended up closing and selling and, and, and their reps moved over to Madison Street Securities probably about two years after that. Oh, man. Yeah, they were they were dying from too much litigation. Yeah. So when we get into, you know, call it the top 50, top 100 broker dealers, which I know generally have moved away from that business. They are at least into the more modern models of mutual funds and managed accounts and and the array of services modern broker dealers provide today. So when you think about this from a matchmaking perspective, you said, you know, your starting point, like you're you're going through an intro call with an advisor, you're kind of picking apart their business. You know, what's your GDC? What kinds of stuff do you use? Are you doing a bunch of annuities? Are you doing a bunch of managed money? Are you trading a bunch of funds? When you think about how to then start making the introductions to particular broker dealers and lining it up, like what are the factors that drive it for you? Like what what are the matchmaker matching criteria that tend to either make a broker dealer a particularly good fit or or another one a particularly bad fit? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, from the information we gather in our initial consultation call, that pretty much helps me to narrow down to what's a fit. And one of the open-ended questions we talk about is, you know, if you had a perfect world in a broker dealer, how would that look to you? What what are you what are you looking for that your current broker dealer isn't providing you that that would put you in a better place? And so that one question helps whittle down a lot of issues for you know what they like and dislike and you know i also you know we'll get into details about you know are you you know do you have an aversion to insurance owned broker dealers or private equity owned broker dealers or bank broker dealers or you know what region of the country the firm is based in is any of that dogmatic for you let me know so and I do a pretty broad range of types of broker dealers as well. I don't want to have all the BDs having a focus on just the financial planning approach. You know, I have some firms that are you know, cache of broker dealers that are really good with institutional business because you still have reps that are doing institutional. And, you know, I have some broker dealers that have a lot of depth and breadth of in the alternative investments and REITs and BDC arena, you know, reps that are still into the endowment model. Even though that hasn't been working out too well over the last two years or so, they're, they're, they still are, are believers. And then, you know, advisors who are been very busy over the last two years with a big focus on the hybrid model and firms that are friendly to hybrid the hybrid approach, where they want to work with TD Ameritrade or Schwab or Fidelity, and that could be under the broker dealers RIA or it could be under their own RIA. Some reps want to work with TD, but they don't want the hassle of having their own RIA. So, you know, there's firms that will accommodate that. And then also, if you're if they're going to be heavily focused on fee-based, 
what about those expenses? And so there too, we'll drill down and, and try to get them away from the firms that pay charge too much in those areas. But there, here's the other di- dichotomy is, you know, are you needing a firm that brings value-added things to the table or are you pretty self-sufficient? If you're self-sufficient, don't go to a firm that ultimately you're going to be paying for a lot of those bells and whistles they provide. But if you need those bells and whistles, you know, we need to look at some of these value-added broker-dealers that have things like practice management, marketing help, you know, all those things that help them to grow their book. That technology varies from rep to rep. Your higher end reps tend to be more focused on technology than our our reps that are doing, say, funds and annuities held direct. All they need is a consolidated client statement and they're content, whereas the advisors that are doing a lot of advisory and have higher end clients, they'll be more focused on technology. So you you raised to me some, some really interesting items there. The first is just, you said you start with this question around what is the ideal you would get from your broker dealer that you're, that you're not getting now? So aside from the obvious, I wish my broker dealer was less of a pain in the butt about compliance, which I feel like comes across in pretty much all, all broker dealers and everywhere. Once you get beyond that, like what, what kinds of things do people say? I mean, what are the typical pain points or searching points that someone puts on the table and says, I just can't take blank anymore. This is why I'm switching. So you got to make sure my new broker dealer is better at this. What sorts of, what sorts of triggers are common? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, yeah, one that's been more common over the, the last year or so are, are reps that are offended at the compliance department and how they're treated during audits or when they get called by compliance where compliance is just a bull in a china shop and end up turning, you know, the, the reps are like, I don't want to be here after after the way I was treated. So they're not being treated very well by compliance departments. And so that's been a major one. But I get advisors oftentimes where they feel like they've just outgrown their firm. And they feel like they're just not a fit anymore. I do get reps that are are moving because they're they're in a compliance situation and their firm asked them to leave okay. over it. Well. <laughs> and uh, those are becoming harder to place. You know, five years ago, placing somebody that had had been suspended for a period of time was not a problem. But now suspensions are getting increasingly difficult to place if they have multiple marks, say three or more marks. So that's become a huge deal over the last year. And that's part of you know FINRA cracking down on problematic rep recidivism and repeat offenses. I know there was the study that came out a few years ago that found this relatively small number of highly repeat offender registered reps that tend to gravitate to a small number of firms that have been particularly open arms to them. And, and FINRA, it seems, is just trying to completely crack down on the repeat offenses. They'll threaten broker-dealers and say, hey, you're above the industry average on your assessment report for reps with multiple marks. And so either you stop bringing on reps with multiple marks or get rid of some of them, or we're going to make your life more difficult and audit you more frequently and probably spend more time here, which is the last thing a broker-dealer wants to hear. And so, yeah, I've, you know, give you a perspective as far as, you know, a firm that's in stance with with FINRA, they'll be audited every other year. And then a firm that's not in good standing with with FINRA, 
they'll be getting audited every year. And they get, and when FINRA does audit them, they might be there for you know a long period of time. So that's what firms want to avoid is getting more attention from FINRA. You want to be you want to be invisible with FINRA because it just means problems. And I remain fascinated by the the compliance dynamic in particular. You know, I get that broker dealers have a compliance oversight obligation. You know, the the fact that there are so many bad sales and transactions that happen out there is frankly why we need the compliance oversight that we do. But it struck me, and I, I still remember it from my days when I was on the BD side before I, I switched to the RIA channel, that there's this effect with BD compliance that I call the lowest common denominator problem. And it's that compliance departments, and it seems to get worse as the broker dealer gets larger, the compliance departments always make rules for the lowest common denominator. So what, whatever the one biggest knucklehead in your entire broker dealer organization could possibly do that screws something up and you know basically gets a compliance a chief compliance officer in trouble for failure to oversee whatever the one biggest idiot in the organization can do everybody is then subject to compliance rules based on that one lowest common denominator threshold and so we get this sort of perverse challenge that in theory the larger the broker dealer the more efficient their economies of scale should be and the more efficient they should be at doing compliance and in practice, at least what I hear, I'm, I'm curious if this is different for you, that in general, the larger the broker, the dealer, the more problematic compliance is because you get more distant or like a small broker dealer, that co-chief compliance officer might actually know virtually every rep. You get into a large BD, they don't know you, they don't know who it is, they don't know who's who, they just have to make rules to the lowest common denominator because that's what keeps them from getting fired from the compliance department. And every and all of the good reps get dragged down to what the one worst rep either does or conceivably could do. Like, do you see that trend as well? Is that shifting or are we kind of stuck with it? I think it's just the nature of larger broker dealers. If you're if you're an advisor who wants to put together a nice Ponzi scheme or do a outside business activity that isn't approved it'd be much easier to get away with it for a longer period of time at a larger broker dealer as you're, you basically are getting lost in the forest of, of other advisors at that firm than, than at smaller firms. The only time I've heard firms catch reps at the early stage of Ponzi schemes were at small and mid-sized broker dealers, you know, but with larger firms, it's, it's usually been going on for a long time before it's uncovered. And, and just, just to be clear, we're not, literally advocating any podcast listeners to set up their Ponzi scheme shops based on the size of the broker dealer. Just, just kind of pointing, just kind of pointing out the dynamic. <laughs> your, your chances of getting away with it are better at a larger firm than, than at a smaller midsize, because as you said, they know, you know, just as clients should know, brokers should know their clients, broker dealers should know their advisors. And it's harder for a larger broker dealer to know and track their advisors. Well, yeah, you know, I, I I get asked a lot of questions about compliance on the broker dealer versus the RA side. And you know, I think there's this prevailing view out there that that compliance is just easier and less stringent and less painful on the RA side than the than the broker dealer side. And and I think that's largely true in practice, having 
lived on both sides, both channels myself and, and seen it for a lot of others. But but it's not it's not like RA compliance is just literally easier and less stringent. You know, frankly, the the standard is higher because the SEC scrutinizes some of the fiduciary obligations even more. But the difference is just the size of organization, right? Like large RIAs might have a billion or few under management, 50 to 100 employees, and a, you know, one or two or three dozen advisors at the most. And like that, you know, that means a huge RIA is like a minuscule broker dealer by comparison. Even the huge RIAs are not the size of mid-sized broker dealers, much less large broker dealers. And so even as I look at it in a in a firm like ours, you know, we're almost 60 employees at our RIA, but I've been there for 15 years. I've worked with our partners for 15 years. And so, you know, the the nature of of trust and depth with the compliance officer is very different when I'm a co-owner in the business and have worked with them for 15 years and they know what I do and what I don't do and my ability to know where the lines are on the regulatory end versus if I was in a large firm and the person who has to oversee me has never met me, has no idea who I am, has no idea of my character because we've never worked together and is trying to write lowest common denominator compliance rules. So I think there's a, a mistake sometimes that's made of RA compliance is easier than broker dealers versus what's more of just an organizational size effect that compliance in many ways is just easier to run at a smaller firm. If you're too small, you don't have the staff infrastructure and it gets a little harder again, but it's just easier to appropriately match the compliance to the advisor when you're not in a mega firm environment. That's just what I see in practice in our in our advisor marketplace. Yeah, one one area with the RIA that's been kind of missing as far as checks and balances is with the smaller RIAs under 100 million who are audited by their state. You know, I've known some RIAs that had been RIAs for 10 years and they were never audited. And you know, there's some of these states that are just way understaffed for being able to accommodate, you know, doing the audits of the under 100 million advisors in their in their in their state so which i know to some extent now is starting to follow the custodians i know regulators are looking a little bit more to the ra custodians to say well what are what are your controls and oversights to make sure that people aren't doing illegal stuff on your platform which i don't think was necessarily part of the business that ra signed up for, or that custodian signed up for to say we have to do oversight on independent ras that we don't literally have compliance oversight into but we hold the client's money and we can see what's going on in the accounts. And when they can't audit every small RIA, it seems like there is a little bit more focus now on, well, we can at least make sure the custodian has good anti-money laundering protocols and good oversight protocols in place to make sure inappropriate things aren't happening. So you even see like custodians flag advisory fees that are unusually high as a percentage of the account. Normally, that would be an internal firm compliance function. But the custodians kind of feel an obligation or some pressure from the regulators to to insert themselves a little into that process as well. So you you noted a couple of other pieces of ways to distinguish amongst broker dealers that I, I think are areas not commonly discussed. You know, you raised kind of BD ownership, like as a rep that's changing. Do you care if your broker dealer is insurance owned or bank owned or private equity owned and 
I think for a lot of advisors who've never been through that environment, the answer is, well, I, I don't know. Sh- should I care? <laughs> well, I, I just ask them. I have my own opinions, yeah. but I, I just ask them because I want to. I don't want to mismatch, you know, where I didn't ask the question. They tell me, well, I don't want insurance, BDs, you know, so I need to bring that out to see what their opinion is. So can you can you give us any color to it, though? Like what? Are, I mean, are there uh, aside from hey, I you know I came from the insurance world and I've got a chip on my shoulder about insurance BD, so I don't want to be there. Like aside from those scenarios, are I mean, are there distinguishing characteristics about purely? I mean, I, I guess basically I, I can sort of come up with four or five different ways that BDs get owned. There's bank owned, there's private equity owned, there's insurance owned, there's just privately owned by some founder, you know, including big ones like Commonwealth, and and then there's public market owned like LPL. So. Like, how should we think about the ownership of the BD and whether or why or how that matters? Well, I'll run through them. You know, the insurance own. Well, we we have far fewer ins- insurance BDs than we used to. So, well, yeah, a lot of a lot of them gotten sold off and yeah, and yeah, and pumped out over the past couple of years. NPC and advisor group and all those. Yeah, what well, you know, they commonly talk about how you know there was a lot of these insurance companies that got burned on their variable annuities offering too rich living benefit on the on the variable annuities they offered. But really what's been the plight of the insurance BDs has been the low interest rate environment has been brutal for, for insurance companies' books. And that's been for the last 10 years. And so, you know, back when interest rates were more attractive, you know, we saw the 80s and 90s were the go-go years for insurance companies diversifying and buying buying broker dealers. We're starting up broker dealers, and now we're in consolidation where they're shedding and sticking to their core business, which is just insurance product. And now it's spreading over to the captive insurance BDs, as we saw with MetLife and now Signator. So, yeah, if you're, you know, the big concern with reps have now with insurance BDs is, you know, is this firm going to be selling in the next couple of years? So there's an underlying fear that they may not be around. And so it's a big job for recruiting departments and insurance BDs to assure them that we're in here for the long haul and this is why. So it, it's a sales job for them right now. And, and the risk from the reps end is just like, I mean, when, when Singapore got spun out or NPH or the rest, like it's not like the broker dealers got shut down and suddenly you don't have a platform anymore. You just got sold and now you've got a different owner and you're going to find out what the solutions are. Yeah. It brings out unknowns. Yeah, I mean, the downside to the insurance BDs used to be because there was product pressures, but they really don't, they can't do that anymore. But they they do, you know, you talk about compliance that caters to the lowest denominator, and, and that's the epitome of, of insurance BDs. They are very much like that. And the ownership, the insurance company is always drilling down with the broker-dealer management to cut costs. So they're, they're always, I, I know the former head of NPC, you know, he, he would, the more recent one, John Johnson, you know, he would share with the recruiter there about how he, at the conference, he was going to serve generic booze and home office should be really happy with him because he's saving money by serving generic booze at their conference. So, yeah, they're always trying to dream up ways to cut corners and save money. And so that that's another downside to the insurance BDs. The private equity ownership, I have mixed feelings on. I've seen good examples of it, like with Kestra, where when Madison Dearborn owned them, they invested $20 million into their technology. And their current owners, which is also a private equity firm, they've been 
you know, they, they're not going in there and slashing costs and doing all this financial engineering to, to flip them a short time later. And so the current ownership has been very supportive as well. And, you know, they've been maintaining a high quality broker dealer. But I've seen some instances in the past, like when Lavelle Minnick owned First Allied, you know, within less than a month of owning, owning them, they did layoffs and they did two or three more layoffs after that. And they owned them for under two years and then sold them to Danny Shorsh. And during that period, the less than two years they owned them, they went from 300 back office people to around 200. And a lot of the brain trusts, which was what originally attracted reps to that firm, were gone. So they, they kind of just gutted the firm. Right. Because when you when you come in and when you come in and cut staff, it's not even just that you're cutting staff which can, you know, reduce response times and make the queues longer for reaching the people you want in various departments, but you don't tend to cut the cheap entry level people. <laughs> you cut the expensive ones that have been there for a long time and and as you said and, and kill the brain trust in the process. Yeah, they had a really good brain trust at that firm. And yeah, they just either left or were asked to leave. But as I said, it was after two years, that firm was kind of a shell of their former self. A lot of the advisors stayed. But as far as the things that attracted them to coming there, it was a much different story. Right. And then, and unfortunately, I think they're a good example of of the way they bounced around, right? Because they went they went from level Minnick to Shorch. Shorch had them for a limited time. Then I'm trying to remember they, they got sold to Satera or tucked into Satera when Shorch also bought Satera. Like they, they ended up with multiple corporate ownership changes in a relatively short period of time after after what had been stability for a long time. Yeah, before Lavelle Minnick, they were owned by Advanced Equities, which was a private equity firm out of Chicago. Advanced Equities was kind of using First Allied as their piggy bank. And, you know, where most firms that are owned have a deep pocket parent, the company, the parent company is is a financial support and they funnel money into them for growth. It was the opposite with Advanced Equities. They were draining money from them. But but again, as you said, like then there's the Kestra scenario where Madison Dearborn plowed money in gave them dollars for tech, made the platform better. So it's just kind of a wild card. I, I guess realistically what it comes down to is there's, and it's not always apparent up front, but there's private equity that buys to, basically buys for cash flow and tends to just strip costs, hunker down, and then try to flip it with better margins not long thereafter. And that that doesn't tend to be as good from the end rep level in the support services you get. And then there's private equity that comes and says, no, no, we view this as a growth story. We want to come in and buy and put money in. And like our goal is to make this much larger and more valuable because there's still a business profit interest, but they're much more interested in putting cash in to build the equity value as opposed to taking cash out as a like a business strategy with this BD asset they just bought and own. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my issue with private equity is ultimately they're into risk transfer, not ownership. So eventually there's going to be a point where they either flip it to a new buyer or they go public and they bow out at that time once they make their money on the, on the stock. So right. yeah, they're, they're there for a season, you know, a couple of years, maybe five, but usually not much longer than that. Right. 
And so, so what about some of the other categories, like bank-owned broker-dealers? Yeah, bank. Yeah, bank-owned, very bureaucratic, very slow, not rep-driven, typically very corporate. Kind of the same reason why reps want to leave wirehouses because they're very corporate, very bureaucratic. So they'll favor, say, a regional firm like Jeffries or oh, what's that one out of, out of St. Louis? Uh, Sternaggy? Not Sternaggy. The one out of St. Louis that has been doing quite well. As I said, it's not my niche. I don't do the regionals or wirehouse. I am focused on the independent. But yeah, they'll, they'll go from a wirehouse to a regional or perhaps go RIA or independent. I, I will say that there's been more activity recently with the wirehouse going independent than, say, over the last few years. But, you know, since about 2012 or so, you know, the wirehouse activity to independent has been mostly concentrated to just a couple firms like LPL, Raymond James, maybe Voya, too. They, you know, they look for name branding. And so they'll, they'll tend to gravitate to. And they also look for a, a lot of upfront money because that's their nature. You know, I have a lot of firms that are small that have wirehouse reps, but these are reps that joined them, you know, back in the in the 90s and the 80s, not more recently. Okay. And then how do you think about public owned versus private owned? So I feel like the quintessential is is sort of Commonwealth being this giant privately owned firm versus a, a company like LPL that's publicly owned on the public markets. I, I like privately owned, I think is the ideal. My issue with publicly owned is there's another mouth to feed, which is the shareholder. So by nature, you know, they're granted they're going to have scale, but a lot of those benefits to scale go to the shareholder. And they're there, you know, the, the first person they want to please is a shareholder and the advisor comes after that. And so, you know, I, I tend to find, you know, the what the wirehouse or not the wire, but you know, the publicly traded, traded like LPL, you know, they'll, they'll give more forgivable note money, but you know, their service level is worse. And a lot of, you know, for, for the last, you know, since they went public, they were dealing with a lot of litigation. A lot of their profits went to litigation and paying FINRA fines. And a couple of years ago, it was getting very bad in that regard. You know, they're kind of have bounced back from that and the litigation is, diminished quite a bit. But here again, as you know, with larger broker dealers, you know, they'll often boast, well, we have deep pockets. And it's like, well, good, you're going to need them because on a proportional basis, you pay much more in fines and <laughs> reps get away with things for a longer period of time because you just don't know them and have a harder time keeping track of them because you have so many reps. And I and I guess the, the caveat on the privately owned, if you want to gravitate that way, is just you know, privately owned at the end of the day becomes at least potentially reliant on literally what is the ownership succession plan of the founder <laughs> who's who's got all these dollars tied up. Like Cateret Grant was private forever until Mr. Grant sold it and now it's private equity owned by Atria. So we'll see whether that's the the good version of the private equity growth story like Kestra or the more problematic version of the private equity. But you know, you're I guess you're your risk, or at least your question on privately owned is what ultimately is going to be the exit strategy of the owner founder, or at least over what time horizon. So you can understand like, could this business have a change in ownership and liquidity event that I may or may not be happy with? Yeah. And that's the sales job for the privately owned is, you know, do they have a solid succession plan? 
Does it look like they're, you know, if, if the, if the story's flaky, the chances of them selling out to somebody go up quite a bit. Frankly, a lot of the, the sales for those firms that were vulnerable to selling, I think a lot of them did back like when Shorsh was offering unusually high amounts <laughs> to buy broker dealers. So any, any, anybody that wanted their liquidity moment, that was, that was kind of the peak of the mo- market right there. Yeah, yeah it, was a, it was the peak of the market. You know, I think for Cetera, he paid a 100% of trailing 12 revenue. And so that's when stupid amounts of money, I mean, it used to be 40% of trailing 12. I remember when multifinancial sold to ING in the Dytok family, they were, they were thrilled. They got 40%. And those were great numbers back then. Some firms were selling for around 30%. So 40 was good, but then Shorsh came along and, and the numbers went up as high as 100% of trailing 12. And actually, I think the probably the highest I saw was when Blue Cora bought HD Vest and there, I think it was 200%, but part of that was stock. So I think that was probably the high, the richest deal I saw was, was Blue Cora buying HD Vest. Although I know Blue Cora had some unique strategic value because HD Vest historically was a very tax-centric broker-dealer, CPA-oriented broker-dealer, and and Blue Cora actually owns as well, I think it's Tax Act, the tax software. So Yeah, they you know, have you online can, tax service, yeah. yeah. So you can kind of envision this like, I know what's coming. Blue Cora is going to have, you know, it's going to start putting recommendations in Tax Act. If you need an advisor, talk to one of our HD Vest advisors. There are CPAs who do financial advising and like, yeah, I get why there was probably a strategic value premium on, on that one in particular. But those numbers, though, still are just fascinating to me that, you know, Shorsh was like a peak of the market paying 100% of trailing 12. Deals used to be 40%. I think NPH, the NPH deal to LPL was in the middle. It was something like 70% of trailing revenue if they hit their retention bonus target. But I just, I contrast that with the RIA space where you're seeing RIA firms getting sold for like a, a low end RA deal gets sold for one and a half times revenue. A lot of them get done for two X and some of the larger ones with scale get sold for even more. So it is, I don't know if you have any perspective. It's like, how, how do we end out with this monster gap that RAs can get sold for two X revenue or, or more and BDs are getting sold as low as 0.4 and like maybe a good deal is 0.7. Well, yeah, good question. Is <laughs> it just a function of the marketplace, you know, the investor dollars voting with their feet to say, no, no, this recurring revenue? Well, I think the difference is, you know, well, the RIA owns that book. The broker dealer doesn't own these books. You know, they're they're just caretakers of books. So that that's the difference. So the the BD isn't actually getting sold for the revenue per se. They're getting sold on the fact that they're a revenue intermediary, which means they you know they get a slice of that revenue until and unless a rep decides to leave, and then they don't, and they're not very captive because they're generally independent contractors and not employees. Since the client and the and the rep can pull the client with them, and it just limits their business value. Yeah, I think the fact that they don't actually own the books is what drives the price down. So you you talked about the the other part of this kind of matchmaking process is around you know are, are you are you doing more mutual fund products are you doing more fee based business you know, are you deeper in alts and and I know some of that's just product just sheer product lineup and like if if you like doing lots of SMAs it would be nice to be at a broker dealer that has a good 
variety of SMAs on the on the shelf on the platform for you. But you know, I know some of this is a cost dynamic as well. You know, as you said, like some firms charge more, and you want to minimize exposure to firms that charge too much in those areas. And so I'm I'm wondering, like I, I feel like this is a good time maybe just talk about the the mechanics of how stuff is priced at broker dealers, which I, I guess basically is another way of saying like how how broker dealers make their money. You know, most of us know the obvious one, which is there's some gross dealer concession. <laughs> I get paid a percentage of that as a payout. So, you know, the broker dealer keeps a slice of my revenue for for providing the platform and that's how it works. But there are other ways that broker dealers either make money as a broker dealer, which means impact costs to the advisor or the end client, besides just that rep payout percentage. It's the one we focus on the most, but isn't the only one in the mix. So can you talk a little bit about like how else do broker dealers make money and what should advisors be watching out for? Again, not because we're trying to play gotcha that broker dealers shouldn't be entitled to make money, but just you should know how they're making money off of you because that may impact some of the decisions about who you work with or what solutions you use at the platform level. Yeah, it's it's interesting because a lot of reps think, well, they, the grid, the 10% I'm giving up to the broker-dealer, that's where they make their money. And it's like, no, you know, I, I had one rep term it, you know, well, for a rep, the pie's 100%, but for broker-dealers, the pie's 120%. And there's some truth to that. You know, they're, they're besides the payout grid, they have many other profit centers. For example, mutual funds and variable annuities, Broker-dealers will negotiate with vendors to earn basis points on assets or sales of products their reps sell. Basically, like over, overrides extra payments that don't hit the grid. Yeah. You know, Broker-dealers would typically make 1 to 10 basis points on either assets or sales of products with small firms making only 1 to 2 basis points and larger firms making Eight, eight or more basis points because of the, they could leverage for more because of their scale. But you know, larger firms have the ability to, to make these basis points on both assets and sales as they leverage their their scale to obtain more. That's across like investments and managed accounts, or that's specifically in the like annuity space. This is for mutual funds and, and variable annuities. I'm speaking. Okay, and then on REITs and alternative investments, broker dealers are in between one percent. And one and a half percent extra in commissions on the products their reps sell, which is a, a huge profit center. And then they also get a marketing reallowance on top of that, you know, like that one to ten basis points that we mentioned. It's you know, probably more in the five to ten. So I see what you mean that like I mean the, these costs, like they're baked into the products. It is what it is. It's not it's not like these are invisible to the rep and they have no say in it, basically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But 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 it kind of illustrates the point that like you know at the rep level we get you know the, there's a hundred percent of our of our GDC and then we get some payout and the broker dealer keeps the rest but the broker dealer's pie really is more like a hundred and ten percent hundred and twenty percent so if I take a mutual fund as an example at a sizable BD like there's a you know I I do a load wave day share for a sizable client there's a twenty five basis point twelve b one fee. I'm going to get my 12B1 fee minus the payout. So 25 bips is paid. Maybe I get 20 to 22 of them, depending on what my payout level is. But in addition to the fact that the BD is getting three to five basis points off the payout grid from me, they could be getting three, five, seven, 10 bips more 
on the back end directly from the company, and, and I don't, I'm not participating in that payout ratio. They, they could be getting another eight basis points on the assets in the mutual fund or variable annuity and another eight basis points on the sale. And then on a REIT sale, you know, you might have been paid a 6% commission and the broker dealer made another 1% commission off the assets you had bought. So the truth for a lot of the companies at the company level, like the product manufacturers is their budget for, call it, Commission's compensation and distribution is larger than what we necessarily see at, at the at the advisor level, at the rep level. There's a carving up process that happens of what goes directly to the BD versus what goes down to the rep and even hits the grid in the first place. And then and then we fight at the about the the payouts at the grid level. So so part of the effect of that then is you, know, you can start to imagine how this plays out. I go to broker dealer number one that says, we'll give you a 90% payout on your non-traded REITs and BDCs. And the other one says, no, 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 we'll give you an 80, we only give you an 80% payout. But the problem is the firm that gives you a 90% payout is only putting 5% commission on the table because they took the other two on the back end. And the firm that's paying 80% is putting six or six and a half on the table because they don't take a big back end. Well, no, actually, the the broker dealers paying the full commission that the rep is offering is just they pay an additional invisible commission amount of one to one and a half percent to the broker dealer. You know that that's just figured in as additional revenue, and it's basically an encouragement for the broker dealer to sell their product. You know, another big expense for the BDs are you know like conferences, broker dealer conferences where the bro- the product vendors spend a lot of money on being sponsored and having speaking engagements at their conferences, and that's another huge, very large expense for the BDs. And you know, the alternative investment re companies have been having a lion's share of presence at a lot of the broker dealer conferences over the not as much recently, but you know over the last say five years. They were the main ones spending money on these broker-dealer conferences where the fund companies and VA companies had kind of pulled back and were, were cutting their expenses. So will you actually see differences on products across broker-dealers because they negotiate these things differently? You know, we give higher payouts, but we're also taking more on the back end. Or like, well, you know, we give higher payouts across our product mix, but – the BDCs and REITs, we actually give you lower commissions than anyone else because we're taking a bigger chunk of it on that end. We give a full payout on this, but we hate haircut. No, the commissions don't. The commissions don't vary in the independent channel. The amount the rep gets paid doesn't vary. It's just the payouts could vary. The main thing with a rep that does a lot of REITs and alts is some firms offer a lot more product in that area than others. There's quite a few firms over the last couple of years that have pulled back their selection in those areas because they want to avoid the risk and the potential litigation with those products. You know, there's been a lot of litigation with REITs and ticks because they were repriced at lower prices and clients didn't get what they had anticipated out of it. So securities attorneys concentrated in those areas. So if the, if the commission rates are all set and standardized across the firms, then like, does it change my decision to know or find out what else the firms are are getting or negotiating on the back end? Or is it at the end of the day, like, hey, you know, the commissions are standardized across the products. So I can really just look at what my payout grid is. And, and it might 
may or may not bother me to know how much my BD is getting on the back end as well. But like it doesn't change the net dollar to me no matter what BD I choose. I can just look at what's the payout rate because the commission structure is going to be standardized across all of them. And, you know, if you're big and negotiate more on the back end, bully to you. Yeah, for the for the alts and REITs arena, at least, yeah, the commissions are the same. They're going to be more focused on the selection of product that the firm has to offer. It will be the, and also potentially ability to add product. And there again, you know, like your larger firms, much harder to get product added. Small and mid-sized firms, much easier to get product added. Yeah, I mean, the, the areas that, you know, the other areas of profit centers, you have ticket charges, you know, the net cost to a broker dealer is probably in the seven to nine dollar range. And then they mark that up to fifteen to twenty dollars typically. So that's their pro- that's a been a longstanding profit center for broker dealers. Money markets, that used to account for a larger part of broker dealers' overall profits were the money market accounts. But since money market rates have been so low, that's been, you know, broker dealers would love to see interest rates go up. Let me put it that way. You can't make a margin on a money market when you you know current rates minus your expense ratio would would take the yield to zero or negative. I guess that's the good news of even the rate increases that we've had already from the from the Fed in this cycle is that at least now there's a little bit of room for broker dealers, custodians, and the rest to start actually generating some additional revenue from their their money market funds in a way that they haven't been able to do for the better part of ten years now. Yeah, exactly. And then the other area that I had mentioned in the advisory arena, there are markups on administration fees on rep directed advisory platforms, you know, like an unbundled account where the administration fee pays for billing and performance reporting. Their net cost, say like at NFS, is three, four basis points, and they mark it up to 15 to 25 basis points for their profit center. And if you're in an all-inclusive account where ticket charges are covered, as well as the billing and performance reporting, those tend to run about 25 to 40 basis points. And there, the net cost of the broker-dealer is perhaps around 10 to 15 basis points. So yeah, those are sacred cows for the broker-dealer. And it's interesting because this year, one of the phenomena was broker-dealers lowering the on advisory accounts lowering the ticket charges to their net costs in anticipation of DOL rules, and so they were only charging seven dollars, seven eight dollars ticket charge in the advisory accounts, and so they lost that profit center. So to make it up, they were raising the the administration fees by about five basis points was typical. So I had one larger broker dealer that charged their, their starting point on the administration fees was 20 basis points. Now they're charging 25. So it's kind of a profit center shell game. Oh, we got to take away from here. Well, well, we'll add over here. In the long run, we're at a break even. But for reps that are not active traders, that administration fee costs them more than if they had to pay the higher ticket charge since they're not doing active trades. So yeah, it's a, it's a loose situation for some of the reps with that higher administration fee. Yeah. But now, now, now it starts to get clearer about what the, what's the matchmaking process looks like from these questions about like, what stuff do you use and what's your revenue mix? So, you know, if you're, if you're doing mostly direct mutual fund business and variable annuities, like 
go ahead and choose a BD with a 25 basis point administrative fee on their advisory accounts. You're not doing advisory accounts. You can let other advisors pay that pay that fee and just focus on on this piece. If you're doing a lot of alts, then you know make sure you've got a good product selection. If you're doing a bunch of managed money and advisory accounts, now you care about the administration fee a whole lot. But then there's still a question of, well, are you a DFA style buy and hold advisory account? In which case, you might find a platform with a lower administration fee and a higher ticket charge because you don't actually care about the ticket charge since you're not going to trade much. Or if you're a if you're a rep that actually does a lot more active trading and you've got your own strategies that you're running, then you might care a whole lot more about those ticket charges and balancing them out with the administrative fee that the platform is charging. That brings up another point is from the broker dealer's perspective, you know, what's a fit for them? And you know, I can go to a firm like Commonwealth, for instance, and they like reps who are doing about 250000 or more. They don't like reps that have a lot of variable annuity business. If they're, say, over 25% variable annuities, they'll say, yeah, that's not a fit for us. Oh, and they do fixed index annuities as well. Yeah, we don't like that product. We're not interested. And, you know, they like the reps doing a lot of fee base, maybe a few alternative investments, with a lot of brokerage accounts at NFS, that's very profitable for them. And you know they've they've been around a long time. They have very high average production per rep, and I guess they can afford to be that picky. But they 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 are picky. And as a matter of fact, they have to like the rep. You know, they even have a a like factor. If they don't like the person and they rub them the wrong way, they'll just say no. But a growing trend we've seen over the last year are firms increasingly hostile towards reps that have direct fund and annuity business because that's less profitable for broker dealers than if those assets were held in brokerage accounts. Because if it's held in brokerage, there's a subtransfer agent fee that's getting paid that the broker dealer can get a piece of. Well, that and they make money on the there's charges, you know, with mutual funds in a brokerage account, there's charges for systematic withdrawals and deposit, dollar cost averaging they charge for. IRA custodial fees, inactive account fees. So there's just many more opportunities for the broker dealer to make profits off brokerage account business than if it's held direct where they don't make anything off of it. They, they don't miss out on all those gouging opportunities, I, I guess I could put it. But yeah, so there's a lot of firms now focused on wanting reps that have brokerage account business because it's more profitable for them. You know, like Kestra, for instance, they've been attracted, they have a wealth platform geared towards wirehouse reps and they like the wirehouse advisors because they have all brokerage account business and that's very attractive to them. And they typically do quite a bit of fee base, which is very profitable and one thing they're not interested in are advisors that have a lot of direct fund and annuity business held away with very few brokerage accounts. That's that's not very of much interest to them. So there's BDs that will accommodate that, but there's also broker dealers that aren't interested in that model. So there's that used to be a very common model, and but there's fewer places that are friendly to that model nowadays. Even though, in some respects, you, know, you take a client with you know, 100,000 invested in an advisory versus mutual funds with just 25 basis points. You know, I, I've known a lot of advisors with that mutual fund model showing the growth over 10 years and it and it came out quite a bit ahead of the advisory model. But nonetheless, the, the our industry seems to be in embracing the advisory model. 
So, you know, it starts to become more and more clear, like what the the challenges around this this matchmaking dynamic now that there's a there's a piece here that's just you know what what are your pain points in your broker dealer like what what do you not like about your current one that you would rather find in a different one there's there's questions around how the BD is owned and what that implies about their their long term trajectory there's a lot around just where do they make their money right is this a BD that mostly makes its money on annuities and funds or the override on alts or are they ticket charge based or are they more about their markups on their administration fees so that you can match the nature of the business that you do to whatever it is that that you know i guess ideally you kind of want to you want to not match their maximal profit centers where they're trying to make the most money let them let them make the high margin on other reps you want to pick the one that that has the least cost in that in that area but with dozens and dozens and dozens of broker dealers it's hard to keep track of which is which and who's hiring what type and which ones like wirehouse reps and which ones like high production and which ones like manage money and which ones like reps doing alts which is essentially where the independent recruiter marketplace comes in is will will help you do that matchmaking and figure it out well yeah where where the advisor will be in good company you don't want to be the odd man out where you're the only guy at your broker dealer with this particular business model because they could come to pass a year later or so where the firm says, yeah, you're, you're just not a fit for how our other reps are doing business. So why don't you find a new home? Another factor too is, are you the only rep at your broker dealer in your state? Because I've had reps, New York, for instance, where broker dealers only had a couple reps in New York and they decided... You know, New York is a huge pain pain in the keister. We're going to pull out of here and they call the reps and say, go find a new home. We don't want to be in New York anymore. So, yeah, there's a downside to being the only rep in your state or just a handful of reps in your state. Also, you know, I, another thing I do quite a bit of is succession planning help where advisors will call me and say, hey, I, my firm, I'm the only rep in my state with my broker dealer, or we only have a couple others. And I, I, I'm 60 years old. I need a junior rep to come in and they're, they're not helping me or have anybody else in my area. So I, you know, hook them up with a broker dealer, which is rich with advisors and choices for succession plans in their geography. So that when they do decide to retire, they have somebody to take over their book. So you're, so you're not necessarily you're not necessarily going out to recruit a junior advisor to be their successor. You're helping them move to a broker dealer that has a deeper pool of succession opportunities based on the size of the BD, the ages of the the reps at the BD, the geographic dispersion to make sure there's reps in the area that you could potentially merge into or sell into as a way to facilitate the succession plan, or at least up, up the odds you get a good succession plan. Exactly. Yep. Okay. And and so how else does the the kind of the marketplace get carved up when you're when you're either trying to differentiate broker dealers or try to differentiate yourself as a rep finding a broker dealer? Like you mentioned at least Commonwealth just targets reps at a certain level of GDC, like that's a a clearing threshold for for them. So how much does production level map matter in the first place and and are there like certain inflection points. You know, if you're if you're above this number, here are the things you should be looking at. If you're below this number, here's the stuff you're gonna to have to deal with. 
Yeah, some firms are friendly to the advisors under 200,000 because there's a lot of firms where if you're under 200,000 you're you're looked upon as a marginal producer. So yeah, there's there's a large segment of our industry that's in the 100 to 200,000 production range. So there there are firms that are friendly to that segment. If you're a million dollar plus producer, there's firms where you can leverage more out of some of these firms where you know you might have firms that cap out at 90%, but you know I have some firms where if you're at a million of production, you can get a 96% payout. If you have a lot of advisory assets, you know the, some of these firms base the amount of administration fee on how much you have in overall advisory assets. So if you have 100, 200 million of advisory assets, you can get your advisory administrative fees down quite a bit. So that actually raises an interesting question. So if we talked about all these different profit center areas, you know, some of which hit the grid, some don't, some which are paid by the advisor and, and some not. What pieces are actually realistically negotiable? Or like I'm I'm not going to renegotiate the, you know, the the one to ten basis points they get on mutual funds on the back end, because I don't participate in that anyways. I I can't renegotiate their money market fund rates because they are what they are. Is it like ticket charges and fee-based administration fees, the primary areas I get to negotiate, or are there other other things as well. Yeah, I possibly pay out. Yeah, the, the main areas that have potential for negotiation is that some firms, not at all, other thir- firms possibly, but payout is possibly negotiable. Advisory administrative fees and ticket charges, though, those are probably the main ones there. And also, forgivable note money is also a negotiable point. So, can you explain just that whole? system and and how it works like you know if you've changed bds once you've gone through the forgivable note world and if you haven't you haven't so can you explain that whole system what's the forgivable note deal how does this work yeah it's money they give you up front when you join the firm it's a forgivable note and it's typically for a five-year period some of the larger notes may go for seven but we'll go with a five-year note period and so you join a firm Let's say you're a million-dollar producer. They're going to offer you, say, a 30% forgivable note. You'll get $300,000 up front. It used to be they would have production tied to those notes. But over the last year and a half, a lot of firms have gotten rid of that policy because FINRA frowned on that because they pe- perceived that as a potential conflict of interest. Well, and, and DOL took a really – DOL fiduciary before it went away took a really big swipe. At, at production requirements tied to forgivable notes, at least for the IRA portion of the business that they had scope of. Yeah, so there were multiple reasons why they, they grudgingly got rid of that. And yeah, I'll tell yeah. you, it was really grudgingly that they did it. There's actually still a few firms that still have it. I believe last I knew Cambridge still had it. I was kind of surprised at that. Yeah, so now they're just based on time. So you stick around for five years. If you leave after two and a half years, you're going to owe half that note money back. And so at the end of five years, you're free and clear. You don't owe owe anything back. So, yeah, the note amounts, I mean, the normal amount for firms that offer forgivable notes is in the 10 to 20% range. There's some firms that'll pay in the 20 to 40% range. Then there's your Ameriprise and Wells Fargo Finet and such where you can get up in the 100% range with those firms. 100%, 100%, 80 to 100% of trailing 12. And there again, it's dependent on, you know, you need to have a lot of advisory business 
to get those higher amounts. If you're more transactional and doing, you know, like transactional stock and bond business and funds and annuities, you won't get those higher amounts. It'll, you know, you know, say at Finet where, you know, you would cap out at a max of 110, a transactional book may only get, say, 60 or 70%. And what's going on in the dynamics that most BDs are paying 10 or 20% and some larger ones are paying 20 to 40? Oh, except what, a Finet and Ameriprise that are going up to 100%. Like that just feels so drastically different. Like, is that because it's just only eligible to a really narrow range of reps that most others and most won't qualify it? Or is this like, because they make money in other ways and they're, they're, you know, they're paying you more up front, but they're going to make more on the back end because the math has to work. Like, how do you get that big of a disparity? More profit centers. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Everything has to be in a brokerage account. You know, you'll probably, you know, on third-party managers, you'll have bigger, bigger markups on the management fees, on the advisory platforms. You know, you'll typically pay higher amounts. I know the at Ameriprise, the administration fees on their advisory platforms are, are high, you know, 25 basis points plus. So, yeah, it, there's no free lunch, as Milton Friedman would say. And if you're offered something, is it too good to be true? Well, if you're being offered substantially more than the industry average, they're going to make it up somewhere. And, you know, it may be something you see, may not be something you don't see, but it'll be made up for. Yeah, some firms are just being more aggressive. I know, you know, LPL recently was doing 50 basis points on assets, which was unusually high. And and to pay on basis points rather than production was also unusual because advisory, it makes sense. But to pay basis points on commission business, which can be dead money, you know, like a, a variable annuity, it just doesn't make sense to have that type of pricing. But yeah, it's just some are more aggressive than others. Yeah, I would think for the LPL advisor, you know, they're spending all this money to bring new blood in, but they're not doing much to keep the people that are already there happy. I would think that that would be an issue for them. Well, and I know that's always been the challenge for broker dealers going through growth. You know, I mean, I sort of, I, I don't envy the position that BDs are in from the business perspective. If you're not growing, you're not, you don't have room to attract to, uh, to give people new opportunities, which makes it harder to attract good home office staff. You're not getting higher economies of scale that give your, your business model more efficiencies or give you better bargaining and negotiating power. But the moment you start putting resources towards growth, then all of the existing reps say, what about reinvesting into existing systems? Why do you keep having to put all the money towards growth? And like you're, they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. You know, some some managing that better than others. Well, I think you know, Commonwealth's a good example of a firm that's more fo- focused on organic growth. And, you know, they do recruit, but they're, you know, very particular when they bring in. And if recruiting slows down, they don't panic. They just stay the course. And that's one thing I like about private-owned broker-dealers is they can think long-term and they're less reactive versus say an LPL, they have a bad quarter and they they flinch and make all these policy changes to accommodate what they just paid a big FINRA fine on. And, and so, yeah, they're more reactive and the publicly traded broker dealers think short term. Yeah. And, and you know, let's say public market scrutiny, like, you know, they're, they're taking calls from they're taking calls from analysts on Wall Street trying to explain their profits for the quarters and what they're doing to turn it around. And just there's the pressure. 
Yeah. So instead of thinking five years out, they're thinking one quarter out. Right. And how do we please the shareholders this next quarter? Right. And so and just one other question on on forgivable notes. Do you know, like, how does tax treatment work for them? Is this income when I get my, you know, 300000 up front as a million dollar producer? Do I, like, pay the taxes as the note is forgiven and is vested over time? Or is this just non-taxable loan money like how does it how does it work from the it's typically spread out over the five years okay so as i don't get i don't get taxed on the 300k i get taxed on the whatever 60k a year as it gets forgiven to me and that's when it officially vests so that's when it's income that i gotta pay taxes on all right so at least i get to i get to amortize my tax impact a little bit so can you talk to us a little bit about the dynamic for Dual registered reps and 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 hybrids. I, I feel like this is an area that just has become a huge focus over the past ten years. You know, we we didn't see very many hybrid reps until FPA won their lawsuit against the SEC and got the the broker dealer exemption struck down for fee based accounts. And all of a sudden, if you were going to do all this advisory work, you really had to be under an RIA. And off went the hybrid movement starting in two thousand eight, a year after the lawsuit, and you know, I think I'd seen one stat that something like 80 or 90% of the reps in the top 50 broker dealers were hybrids or had a hybrid option or something. It's like this astonishingly high number of dual registrants now, obviously to varying degrees about how much they use it, but it's out there. Well, that term hybrid, I think it's misused. You can have a firm like Raymond James and Commonwealth will say they're hybrid, which is true they, in the sense that they let advisors have their own RIA. And there's a lot of reps that have their own RIA for, say, doing financial plan work. And so the, they do that on their own. The BD doesn't have involvement when they have their own RIA. You know, there's no haircut on that, although some firms have, have started to do that as well for profit centers. But in my mind, a true hybrid is, you know, you, you can not only have your own RIA, but you can custody those assets away from the broker dealer at say Schwab or TD or Fidelity IWS. But you know, like at Commonwealth and Raymond James, you have to custody those assets and they're clearing in Raymond James Clearing or at NFS because that's where their profit centers are. They they don't want those assets held away at Schwab or TD because that's less profitable for them. So in my mind, a full hybrid model is one where you can not only have your own RIA. But you have the option of custodying those assets away if you choose as well. And there's far fewer firms nowadays that are open to that than there used to be. And now they don't allow it just because it's, you know, it grew too well. There's too much money they're not getting a piece of now. So they need the profit center and they're trying to pull it back in. Is it like, is it that simple? It's that simple. Yeah. I mean, there there's firms like Cambridge, which basically got their start as being the hybrid friendly broker dealer. But they more and more are focusing on, you know, encouraging reps holding those assets away less in that direction and more in advisors holding their assets in their proprietary advisory platforms because it, it, it's so much more profitable for the broker dealer. And they'll, they'll offer some freebies. Like if you have X amount of assets in our internal, internally managed platform, you'll get free Allbridge. You know, they'll throw Allbridge at them for free as an enticement to have those assets in their bigger profit center. And then then some of the what I couldn't make sense of, because it doesn't happen all the time, it's kind of hit and miss. 
for some reps that would hold their assets away at, say, Schwab or TD, get some reps who would have a platform fee charged of like 10 basis points. And well, what, what's the BD doing for that? Nothing. They're just doing that because they want to make up the profit loss that they are missing out on with those assets being held away versus held with them. Is there a niche forming for broker dealers that are actually willing to stand up and say, I'll, I'll just take the BD business. Y'all can do whatever you want with the outside RIA business. We're, we're not trying to make that a profit center. In fact, we'll welcome the people that, that wants to keep that separation. Yeah, there's, there's that niche of firms that are friendly to that. And then there's another handful of broker dealers that pay 100% on the RIA side. They don't take any haircut on that. They only take a haircut on the commission side. There's only about six or seven firms that have that model. PKS is probably the largest. They have around, I think they're at about 13, 1400 now. They've grown quite quickly and they have a nice referral source of, it, of attorneys that refer refer reps to them. But yeah, they'll pay 100% on any of the RIA business. Because because they've got other profit centers? Because they're... Well, yeah, they, they just make money on the commission side. Okay. I mean, the downside with that model is, you know, you're, you are you have a rep with $200 million in advisory and maybe, you know, 200000 of commission business, which is decreasing as time goes on. You know, it's just maybe some trails and they may do an occasional REIT or, you know, mutual fund for a smaller client. But it's definitely kind of the afterthought of their overall book. Their main focus is the fee-based. But the problem with that model is, you know, the, the broker-dealer is basically getting the crumbs of the rep's overall production. You know, they're not making anything off the main, part, main, the main thrust of their focus, which is advisory. Well, it, it strikes me just there, you know, the, the industry shift to fee-based, you know, is, is sort of – it seems like this inevitable shift at this point and more and more money flows that way over time, but it, it just fundamentally doesn't fit the traditional broker-dealer business model. And it seems like they're they're all still struggling in their own various ways to figure out how to contend with that. You know, you can you can say you're supportive to reps that do lots of fee-based or have an outside RAA, but the problem is the reps that are doing that tend to be focused on just you know, gathering assets and building their RIA bigger, the commission-based business tends to either be stable, low volume, or or literally just kind of runoff trails. So, I guess as the BD, you can make some money on that for some period of time. But when your organic growth rate is going to be zero or negative on all of that business on the on the core commission business, like this is this is not good for you in the long run. So they've tried to shift over to all of these administrative fees on. Advisory accounts, and I get it, they got to make their money somehow, but then I see more and more reps that are mostly advisory that are paying these 15, 20, 25 basis point fees to to brokerage platforms. And at some point they say, you know, I can just go direct to an RA custodian and pay zero. I mean, I got to go buy my own billing and portfolio performance reporting software, but if I'm large enough, like, most of that software is charged on a fixed dollar basis, not a basis point basis. So if I get large enough, flat fee software is a lot cheaper than broker dealer administrative platform fees and basis points. Like are 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 you seeing them figure out how to reinvent themselves in a way that stems this flow, or are the broker dealers just gonna keep bleeding off the the advisory business as reps shift to it and then grow larger and then get large enough that they say, Wait, why am I with my BD? I can just 
run my own RIA separately with a custodian with more scale. Yeah, at this point in time, the biggest competition to the independent and the wirehouse, for that matter, is advisors going fee only. And the wirehouse and the independent channel, they're going to have to figure out how they could bring more value to the table to justify advisors to stay. At this point, I don't think they've figured it out. It's a it's a striking balance to me because you know while the early days of the RIA space was frankly like a like a lot of pioneers that you know went out into the wilderness and blazed their own trails just there there wasn't much technology there wasn't much support structure there wasn't much ecosystem besides just a couple of large RIA custodians that did the core custody and clearing business and so you had to be like really stubbornly independent minded to to go and blaze that trail. Now we see this subset of RA platform plays that have begun to emerge, you know, Hightower and Dynasty Financial. And I'd even kind of put our XY planning network in this category, although we serve a very different marketplace where we say, you know, look, you don't have to go into the RA space and be there on your own. Here's a platform business that will support your REA and will help you get the technology and will help you figure out the compliance and will help you do the some of the back end office stuff so you can focus on your clients. And and like I feel like the RA side of the industry is basically reinventing the broker dealer model while broker dealers figure out how to how to flip over to the fee based side, right? We're all converging in this space, which is there's a subset of advisors that just love to be so independent, they're gonna build everything themselves no matter what. And most people are not wired like that. They would like a little bit more infrastructure and system, and they just want to focus on their clients and, and growing their their business, but not running all this backend stuff. And so there's a need for advisor support systems. We just sent out with this convergence where there's platforms like Dynasty that build from scratch and try to build up to the capabilities that reps need when they switch over. And then you've got broker-dealers that are trying to reinvent their own platforms to get to the same place. And the bad news for the startups is you've got to build from scratch. The bad news for the broker-dealers is you've got to build around all your legacy infrastructure and all the legacy costs. And and we're just kind of in a race to see who builds a viable platform first as they both come at it from their opposite sides. Exactly. So when, when you look at IBDs, I mean, are, are there – is there a point now where you look at some of them and say like, yeah, I don't know if I would tell an advisor to go there because I'm not sure these guys are going to be around in three or five or 10 years because they don't seem to be making this shift very well? Like, Do you see that at your level? Yeah. I mean, there's some firms out there like National Securities where you know they did have a company invest in them that you know kind of gave them the capital they needed. But they're firm believers that the transactional stock and bond model is here to stay. Well, I think the jury's still out on that because if you ask FINRA, they would disagree with that. <laughs> you know, talk to securities attorneys, they would disagree with that. So they're they're kind of swimming against the currents. You know, firms under 100, I think it's a tough go for them. There's some very good firms that are smaller, but... Meaning firms under 100 reps? Yeah, firms under 100 reps that, you know, the advisor is, you know, the advisor's at those firms feel insecure. And, you know, they're like, hey, is my firm going to be able to hack it? You know, if, if you're under, especially if you're under, say, 25 million of revenue as a broker dealer, you know, the, the cost of compliance has taken about a 30% bite out of their profits over the last couple of years. You know, it's disproportional the amount of 
compliance costs is, is definitely disproportional to a big BD versus a small BD. And then any advisor they're courting, you know, they're going to feel insecure about their being small. You know, they're, they're going to want transition money, which they can't do. You know, it, it's just a tough sell for them. You know, they could they could sell the high service level, high touch, flexibility, you know, all those things. But and I do have reps that seek that out where they could be a big fish in a little pond. But overall, it's it's a it's an increasingly tough sell for those smaller BDs and even the bigger. I mean, a sweet spot for me personally with broker dealers is when they hit a hundred million of revenue. I, I look at that as kind of a, a safety plateau where I don't have to be as concerned with their financial viability and their and their being able to survive going forward. It's a striking thing to me how the recruiting dynamics are just are changing the landscape. I feel like I've watched over the past couple of years, you know, the the reps that are going up market and more fee based are you know, demanding more services, demanding more payouts. They're able to get it from some larger firms that are willing to negotiate and do that. And so the higher production, more fee-based reps seem to be gravitating to you call like top 50 broker dealers because of that competitive dynamic. And that means if you're a smaller broker dealer and you want to recruit, you're struggling to get those people, which means if you're going to recruit, you, you kind of got to take what you can get and what you can get tends to be more transactionally based. And that it seems like we're, we're, we're getting this divergence where larger broker dealers are, are very disproportionately more fee-based than smaller broker dealers, which if you think the future is heading towards more fiduciary and more fee-based, like ultimately doesn't bode well for small broker dealers. And like not because small broker dealers can't do can't do fee-based or can't exist with reasonable scale, but just they can't recruit the reps that are moving in that direction. Well, yeah, the, the smaller broker-dealers have to take more risks, yet they're the very audience that can that cannot afford more risk. You know, the bigger firms can. So, yeah, so they're between a rock and a hard place where they have to, you know, if they want reps, they have to be willing to take reps that might have more compliance marks on on their record. Not always. As I said, there's exceptions to this. There's a firm like Prospera, which has 100 reps, and they have good compliance records largely at the at that firm, and their average production per rep is over 400,000. So they, they've made it work, but there's a lot of firms that are smaller, under 100, that they're just between a rock and a hard place in, in being able to attract reps. And when they do get a rep, you know they, they've got to have more flexibility in taking the higher risk reps and or having a marketing niche that might be higher risk, such as having a niche with REITs and BDCs and alternative investments, which have much higher litigation rate. It's an interesting dynamic. So, I mean, you, you, you live this space, you live this space for the better part of, of 20 years. So you know, as, as someone that's in the business of recruiting into the independent broker dealer channel like what what is your outlook on the on the independent broker dealer channel like how does this play out over the next 5 to 10 years well we might see more wirehouse reps coming to our channel more of the captive insurance reps coming to the independent channel but more of this channel going RIA so it, it could end up being a break even potentially bleeding more numbers out to the RIA 
but that could change. You know, we, there, it has been kind of a two-tier compliance, you know, with FINRA policing us, whereas RIAs left to the states. I know FINRA has been eager to want to wanting to do the supervision of RIAs, but RIAs cringe at that thought. But if it gets tougher to be to have your own RIA where they're under more scrutiny, maybe something similar to what broker dealers have with FINRA. You know, we could see some RIAs not wanting to have their own RIA and joining broker dealers. We could see some backpedaling in that regard. I've actually had cases where reps had their RIA and they didn't want to hassle with it anymore and they wanted to be with a broker dealer. It's an exception, but I've I've had that happening a bit more frequently over the last couple of years than I had prior. Interesting. So so you kind of see this dynamic where the the independent channel maybe does okay because they can pull enough from wirehouses and captive insurance reps to to replace what's bleeding out to the RA channel, which I guess is also nice way of saying like the the net losers that are much more challenged are the captive insurance reps and the wirehouses themselves that don't seem to be having much luck recruiting from independent broker dealers or from RIAs. They're just largely seeing net outflows, net outflows from a big base. There's 50,000 in wirehouses alone. Yeah, I think for the wirehouse, it's about culture and that the reps just are growing tired of their bureaucratic culture. And it's just not a warm fuzzy for them. They want to go to greener pastures where they can be the master of their domain and choose how they what they do and how they do it and have more autonomy and not be dictated to so much. So flipping it around, like what advice would you give younger and newer advisors coming into the industry today as they're trying to figure out what platforms to be affiliated with? Well, yeah, if you're starting out, it's all about marketing. So perhaps a broker dealer that is marketing focused with helping advisors to grow. So organic growth and, in, in, you know, so marketing platforms, practice management, a lot of training tools. So the value added broker dealers would be good for them. And and how do you how do you find like who are the players there or how do you find that because like you you're new you have no revenue like you don't you can't you can't engage recruiting services and get bonus payouts and all that when you're starting from zero and there's no revenue there's no trailing twelve there's no GDC yet well they they can ask they can ask the broker dealer what do you do you guys have anything in place to help advisors to build their book and grow it and see what they offer because some firms don't offer very little. And then others are robust. So it varies. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And you know, one of the things that always comes up is just the nature of success and what people are trying for means different things to different people, sometimes different things to us at different stages of our own lives. So we, we've talked about this from the perspective of you know, consulting with advisors and, and how to help them make decisions about broker-dealer platforms. But I'm just curious, at a, at a personal level for you, how do you define the success path for yourself and your business? Success for me is to be able to work, but it's not work. It's I enjoy it. I look forward to it. So it's not work for me. So to be able to go and do your job and it not be so much work, but something you enjoy doing day to day, I think that that's very much a blessing to have that. And so I appreciate that, that I have that. So, and I'm always fine-tuning things. You know, I started writing articles back in 2005, and that was motivated by the fact that I read a book called Credibility Marketing, and they talked about 
writing articles as among one of numerous things for building credibility. So I read that in like 2004 and I started writing articles in 2005 and I've just built on that since. And so that's been just one one form. I've added a new form recently or I've started doing podcasts on my website and you know I talk to reporters on a on a regular basis. So you know my objective originally with that credibility marketing was to not, you know, I, I hate cold calling, for instance. So what can I do to not cold call? And so the, the focusing on credibility marketing was part of that. And, you know, I haven't cold called since 2006. And, you know, in 2005, I did some cold calling for a producer group that had a turnkey marketing program. And so I placed about 15 advisors with them over about a year and a half period. But since then, I, I haven't cold called and, and I enjoy not cold calling. So, so that was part of my motive in, in writing articles was to change the, the way I do business to where I wouldn't have to cold call. Very cool. I'll admit a lot of the, the path towards blogging and writing was the uh, same for me. I just, I'm an introvert. I started on the cold calling side. I don't like it and I'm not very good at it. So let's, let's find a way to reach people where the, the there's a pathway for this to come to you so you don't have to cold call your way to the to the business. You know, we'll we'll make sure we get links out to some of this as as well. So for folks that are listening, this is episode 83. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 83, we'll have links out for John's podcast recordings up on his website. John, I know you have a column on Think Advisor as well, which was how I first became familiar with some of your work. So credibility marketing works. And thank you for for joining us and going through this conversation about the the broker dealer landscape and how it works and what's going on out there these days. No, I appreciate your contact and this this is an, uh, an enjoyable experience. Likewise, thank you. Have a good day. Thanks. Take care. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.